This is Health Yeah, your weekly update on what's going on in the health, wellness, and medical world with Monica Robbins. It doesn't care who you are, where you live, or how much money you make. Addiction can take a hold of anyone, significantly impacting families and communities. According to the CDC, in 2021, nearly 108,000 Americans died from drug overdose deaths. That was up 15% from the year before and made it a leading cause of death in the U.S. Today's expert explains how treatment has changed, how legalizing marijuana impacted the drug crisis, and how to erase the shame surrounding addiction. That's all ahead on this edition of Prescription for Life. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Monica Robbins. This is a topic that carries so much guilt and shame for many. Alcohol or drug addiction, also known as substance use disorder. It's a chronic disease of the brain that can happen to anyone, like any other chronic disease, such as heart disease, cancer, or diabetes. Since 1999, more than one million Americans have died from overdose deaths. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and our expert, from the Cleveland Clinic sheds light on addiction, the stigma, and ways to get help. But first, for some people struggling with an addiction, it all started with a prescription medication. Take a look. I was young. I got prescribed Vicoprofen for an oral surgery that I had. Aaron Mark's story echoes thousands. But for me, it was kind of like grabbed hold of me. Um, and within a really short period of time, I, I became addicted to them. But like many, Aaron's addiction escalated. You know, next thing you know, I'm alone and I'm, you know, IV drug user within a short period of time. Substance users are common. Uh, and you're not alone. His friends and family worried. It never hurts to ask someone that you love, how are you doing? I'm worried about you, and I want to talk about something I've noticed. Aaron heard their concern, and when he was ready, had a lifeline. When things really hit bottom, I was able to like pick up the phone and call and ask for help. But it can take time. Every single person is different. Every single person responds differently to everything and when people get engaged with treatment they tend to do really well the biggest problem we have is getting people engaged in treatment but there are efforts to make it easier this summer the national 988 mental health helpline opened as a portal to resources it's a number people can use for substance use disorder problems of any kind or mental illness problems of any kind if you or a loved one might need help dr runnels advises keeping a list of local resources and make that first call even if it's just for information and i often say to people Take the first next step. It's hard to know where this journey is going to go, but it never hurts to go sit down with someone and just get an assessment. The pandemic showed us a glaring need for more mental health professionals. Telehealth is a convenient option. Virtual health has, is largely able to accomplish in the world of uh, mental health and substance use disorders a lot of what um, we could do in person, and it is often a perfectly viable model for a lot of things. But in times of crisis, there's help too. And if your needs are on the more dire side, if they can't wait, 
almost every provider is figuring out ways to get those people in and prioritize those people. Aaron, now 18 years in recovery, has a wife, a successful career, a strong support network, and uses his experience to help others and beat the stigma. I'm not ashamed of my experience. Uh, I don't hide from my experience. Stories like Aaron's are very common. We now know how painkillers containing opioids can be highly addictive. Ohio was one of the worst hit states in the opioid crisis. Our Cleveland Clinic expert shares how the crisis changed medical care, how legalizing marijuana impacted drug use in some states, and of course, how to get help. Joining me now is Dr. David Stream, who is medical director of Cleveland Clinic Lutheran's Alcohol and Drug Recovery Center. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So obviously a lot of people are well aware the biggest problem we faced in the last two decades, the opioid epidemic. It's not over, but where are we? Well, it's evolved a lot in the last 10 years. Uh, states and also the federal government have uh, made treatment available, uh, much more available than it ever has been. And uh, prescribing of prescription opiates has been uh, curtailed and controlled. And we have a much better understanding of what patients actually benefit from prescription opiates and what patients don't. And also better ways to handle pain besides opiates. A lot of the prescription opiates that were sloshing around in our communities uh, 20 years ago now are gone. But the heroin uh, supply has become increasingly completely replaced with fentanyl, and even the cocaine supply has had fentanyl introduced into it. So now that those two sources seem to be the main source of illicit uh, opiate use. In 2021, unfortunately, over 100,000 people died of opiate overdose, which was about a 10-15% increase over the previous year. So things are getting worse, but the epidemic has changed quite a lot in that time, and in the treatment community, we're focused on responding to that. The stigma, has it changed or mellowed some? I think quite a bit. Uh, we still have a lot of work to do, though. There are great organizations like Shatterproof that work to uh, reduce stigma. And I know in healthcare organizations, which you know, have uh, struggles with stigma as well, uh, I think we've made a lot of progress. All right, let's talk about a big issue affecting a lot of states. They've uh, made marijuana use recreational. It's on the ballot in November for Ohio. What are some of the things that you hope people understand or realize if marijuana becomes legalized for recreational use in Ohio? Well, first of all, I think that the amount of the active most arguably dangerous ingredient in uh, cannabis, which is THC, uh, that the amount of that is much higher today that you see whether uh, sold by dealers or by dispensaries, uh, the amount is much higher than we saw 30, 40 years ago. Uh, and that means that there are additional 
risks, particularly risks of psychosis, of developing delusions and hallucinations that don't go away when the effects of the drug go away, and can last an entire person's, uh, a person's entire life. So there are risks that are associated with it, and also um, the risks of uh, things like impairment while driving. Uh, under the influence of cannabis is a significant problem in a lot of other states that have legalized um, recreational use. Finally, I think one of the overarching problems that we're all struggling with is when the laws and rules are different in every state. And uh, I think that's uh, something that creates a lot of confusion, both amongst healthcare organizations, healthcare professionals, and the public, um, because uh, the position of different states is, is different. And I think we would benefit from a more unified approach to how we regulate um, a product like cannabis. So just from perspective, pros and cons, I, I've, I've read studies that in the states that legalized recreational use, they actually saw a decrease in opioid overdoses. But you're saying, but there's there are other risks associated too. So what are the things that if, if voters decide or another state is considering this, if is there anything specific that you want them to you know, bear in mind. I don't think anyone's going to argue that the risk of overdose, um, the risk of it, uh, ingesting too much of this substance is higher with cannabis than it is with opiates. I, I think we can all agree that uh, it is less risky in that, with that specific problem. But there are other problems like psychosis, uh, use disorders, um, and um, uh, problems associated with driving and functioning, being in safety-sensitive environments, uh, and breathing too, of course. We're starting to see more and more folks where cannabis smoke is more of a threat to their uh, breathing health than nicotine smoke is. And that uh, creates uh, another set of risks. Uh, the biggest thing is exposure that, that everyone agrees on all across the country is exposure to, uh, of marijuana to kids, particularly under the age of 14, comes with an extra set of risks. The brain is still developing. Brains develop until the age of 26. And uh, if people who are exposed to cannabis below the age of 14 uh, have a much, much, much higher risk compared to the general population of developing a substance use disorder by the time they're 21. So definitely exposure in kids is super important to prevent. Um, a lot of other states that have tried to do this have thought, well, um, uh, kids report that cannabis is highly available already, so it can't get worse. And then it did. So um, just because people say, well, this is already something that exists, I think it's important for people to think about, well, could it, could it get worse than it already is? Because I think that was an underestimate uh, of the risks 
in other states that have pursued this path. So for long, for a long period, it's always been considered the gateway drug anyway. And now that it's far more potent than it used to be, is that still the case? And, and you talked about your concerns about kids smoking it, um, but the, you said 21 mm -hmm. is, so what's the, what's the risk? Like how many people become addicted to drugs just from marijuana? Well, it's, it's hard to say. And I think it's also uh, important to point out that the term gateway drug, which you used, um, has a lot of different definitions. I, I, it's, in, it's always been interesting to me that when people use that term, they, um, uh, I think a lot of people have a clear idea of what they mean, but different people have come up with different ideas. So how you define that depend, um, changes what the numbers are. But um, we do know that early exposure predicts later problems. That's very clear and consistent. Alcohol, it hasn't gone away either. No, it has not. Has it gotten worse? Uh, during the pandemic, yes. Uh, I would say it definitely has. In uh, communities with a large presence of uh, mutual help organizations like Alcoholics Anonymous and Recovery Dharma, um, the, um, the availability of help uh, was definitely almost uh, eliminated for the first months uh, or maybe year of the pandemic. Uh, in, um, in, in our area in Northeast Ohio, we went from nine virtual 12-step uh, meetings available throughout the entire area to now we have over 250. So smart people devoted to taking the message and bringing it to people in the way that at the time that we could receive it. And of course, all of those meetings are still going on now. Plus, we've been able to bring back in person meetings. So um, a lot of the support services are coming back now. Plus, we're taking what we learned in the pandemic and keeping that as well. And so all of that together makes uh, virtual uh, addiction treatment plus hospital-based and residential and in-person outpatient. I think it makes it more available and accessible to people now than it's ever been. Getting people help is one thing. Convincing someone they need help is, is another. Your advice to families who may be dealing with a family member who is, is struggling with this, but, you know, pardon the phrase, but hasn't hit the rock bottom yet. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you do? Well, I think there's uh, a lot of, um, again, great resources online. And uh, I think that the thing to remember is that, first of all, when you're um, someone who loves someone with a substance use disorder, that you, um, th the first thing you gotta do is take care of yourself and make sure that you're in a healthy, safe, good place so that you can, again, um, bring that message and communicate to that person what their substance use uh, what impact that's having on themselves, what you see, and also on maybe the family, on their job, uh, all those sorts of things. Um, 
and physicians and therapists can be very, very helpful with that as well. Uh, I think that uh, there's a lot of great books available as well on talking to people with substance use disorders. Have we learned anything? Has treatment changed in any way due to the, the influx from the pandemic and the opioid epidemic alone? Have we learned, has treatment changed or is it still pretty standard? Well, I think there's three things that I've seen change a lot in uh, the time, the 20 years I've been in practice, which has coincided certainly with the opiate epidemic. Um, the first thing is that through the development of uh, different interviewing techniques with patients, uh, first of all, treatment is much, much, much less confrontational. Uh, there's, I think, a, a widespread acceptance that um, confrontation doesn't work and just generates more uh, resistance. Um, so being more collaborative with patients and helping uh, them to explore why they continue to use the substance and what effect that's having on them, positive and negative, and whether they are motivated to make a change. That uh, generates a tremendous amount of um, motivational improvement. The second thing is uh, the availability of medication treatment. So uh, there's been a, a very widespread expansion of availability of medication treatment, particularly for alcohol use disorder and opiate use disorder. We're still really working on solutions for cocaine use disorder that's been a very frustrating part of the spectrum of disease. Um, lastly, I think the pandemic forced us into an online virtual treatment mode. And me and many of my colleagues who were raised and trained to do in-person therapy were, I'm not gonna lie, early on very skeptical that virtual treatment would work, and it has. Uh, the outcomes are very comparable. I think that patients know whether virtual is gonna work for them, and it's important for us to listen to that, um, because for those folks, you, you can't just cram people into virtual or in person and expect that to work for everyone, but in listening and being collaborative with patients, uh, and families, uh, for those patients who virtual is a good option, I think it can be really effective. We've learned a lot in the last three years about how to deliver that treatment in a virtual setting that works and makes treatment accessible to people who are in uh, very rural areas or otherwise have poor access to transportation. And we've been able to reach out to people all over that would have never come to treatment uh, if they had to physically get their bodies there. Final thought, do you think we have succeeded in educating the public that addiction is not a choice? Uh, I think that um, we still have work to do there. Uh, I think there's a lot of, um, I think individuals, you know, it, it's the kind of thing that you have to do person by person. Um, 
and but it is a disease from yes, your perspective. Yes, and um, but I think people have to see that and experience it um, themselves in a direct way to be convinced of it. Um, I, you know, I've been doing this long enough that you see bright, strong, disciplined, successful people who've made you know lots and lots of good decisions in their lives develop terrible substance use disorders. Um, and of course, some of them have experienced terrible damage to their lives because of it. Some of them have uh, done well and recovered. And they're still the same bright, successful, disciplined, strong people um, with this disease that they then take on as part of their identity. And then they can use that to bring, to, to bring the message to others about their recovery. Bottom line, there is hope. Absolutely. Uh, hope gets me out of bed and brings me to the office every day to see who's going to change their lives today. Dr. Stern, thank you so much. Great insight. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into Health Yeah. Please find me on Twitter and Instagram at Monica Robbins. Like and follow my Facebook page, Monica Robbins WKYC. Find video podcasts at Monica Robbins channel on YouTube. And please subscribe. Wishing you great health and hope to see you again soon. Thanks for listening to Health Yeah with Monica Robbins from WKYC Studios. Subscribe now so you never miss an update. And find more on everything you heard here on WKYC.com and on the WKYC app.